Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I think very early it was like I, I felt when I would be in front of people, it was like I, and I had all their attention. It was, I felt this magical sort of ability to create a space with them. Like it felt like I could create a room around us or like a magic bubble that we all sort of were suspended in for any amount of time. And I, I discovered this when I was out dancing, you know, say my dad took me to a jazz concert or something and I would just get up and start dancing around to the music and, and people would start looking at me and I really enjoyed it. And so then I would kind of uh, coast on that wave or surf on that wave of, of attention. And it, it was like an energy exchange that I felt from a very early age. And I thought, this is good stuff. I like this. And, and I can, and, and I'm taking everybody with me on this journey and it, it feels good. And it just, it just always felt like I was more of myself in those spaces. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. 
From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Holly, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Sweet. I'm totally stoked to be here. Yeah, I am thrilled to have you here. I was introduced to you by way of your publicist who has actually been sending us a steady stream of really interesting and uh, amazing people. But before we get into your work, uh, I want to start by asking you what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? <laughs> I, you know, I, what social group I was, I was one of those kids who it was like, I could have kind of been adopted into many social groups. I was just sort of friendly and sweet and a little bit smart. I was in the gifted classes, but I was also um, within the gifted classes known as kind of like the airy fairy one that was like staring out the window. <laughs> um, and I ended up in the theater and the theater and band camp, basically, were my people. 
the theater folks. Um, you know, I played clarinet in my high school marching band, totally dorky uniforms, loved it. And, you know, it's funny, like even inside of being in the theater, the theater group, I always felt a little bit outside of whatever group I was inside. Um, I just sort of always felt like I, yeah, like I didn't even, I didn't quite even fit the theater mold. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I felt, um, a little bit outside of that group even, but that's where I ended up. Yeah. So, yeah. So I knew theater was a big part of your life. I mean, we share marching band in common, by the way. Uh, (laughs) and I remember reading on your about page that you grew up more or less exposed to theater, uh, auditioning for things, even as a child. So what is the experience of, of, uh, you know, being exposed to the arts and sort of this kind of discipline at such an early age, um, what are the good things about it? What are the bad things about it? And what, you know, would you tell parents who are listening to, to this? Mm, Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny, like you hear these sort of quote horror stories about stage moms that push their kids to, into auditioning. And I used to fantasize that that was my experience. I used to wish that my parents were like that. Um, my, my mom was a Illinois farm girl. So very practical, um, down to earth woman still is today. Um, lovely woman. Um, she's grown more whimsical, I think through her daughters. Um, but my dad, my dad was cool. He was about show business. He had been in advertising. Like if you've seen that show, Mad Men, Mm -hmm. my dad was, that's like my dad. (laughs) He was in that era of Mad Men. Uh, but instead of uh, New York, it was Chicago and my dad. So my dad was really sort of into the idea of me being in show business. My mom was more like, uh, you know, but both of them were careful. They didn't really, you know, they, I think my dad knew more about that world than my mom did. And they didn't want to see me get hurt or rejected or, but there was no stopping me. I was, I was, you know, we didn't have money. I didn't have nice clothes. I don't know what made me think I could do it, but I just, I just knew I needed to be an actor. I was like, this is, I'm, I'm good at this. I think I can do this. I want to audition. And I, pushed my dad. Basically, I just kept bugging him until he took me to Chicago. We spent two weeks uh, walking around the pavements, like pounding the pavement of Chicago, looking for an agent. And in those days, you could look in the yellow pages and find the different listings of agents. And so I, um, so we, we just went to as many as had open calls. And at that point, I didn't know if I wanted to be a model or an actor, or, but I knew I wanted to do acting. I knew, you know, but I thought maybe I could do modeling too. And, and very quickly they, you know, the modeling, um, camp was like, you're the pretty girl next door. You're not going to be, you know, you're not six feet tall. You're not going to be a model, but do, you know, do commercials, do auditions for that stuff. So I started auditioning and my dad, um, we didn't have enough money. I lived in Indianapolis. I grew up in Indianapolis. We didn't have enough money to fly to Chicago for auditions. And so when we would get an audition, we get on the Amtrak train, which took five hours to get to Chicago. We, we get there, uh, you know, go to the casting agent's office and, you know, you get like two minutes to 
to do, you, you get to be seen for like maybe two minutes, depending on how long the script is. And, and then they're like, thank you very much. And you leave and you get back on the train for five hours and go home. And I, I loved it. And I was really bombing in the beginning. I had a really rough, uh, time in those auditions with, you know, nervousness and stage fright, and which I think has made me very passionate now about what I do is having those early experiences that were just mortifying. And yet I knew, I knew I had to keep doing it. So I would, you know, be, spend all this time on the train. I'd have to miss school. Um, and I just think it was like such an interesting and fun journey. And so what I would say to kids is, and to parents is, um, you have to really want it. Like if you just kind of think it would be fun, don't do it. You know, don't, it's like, try it, but it's so much rejection. It's so hard in the beginning to get into it that you have to really, it has to be your sole primary focus. I mean, I think what I had going for me is nobody had told me really yet in life, like you can't do this. And so I just thought I can do this. And I had, um, focus on my side. I just, I had nothing else in my life that I wanted, really wanted to do. So I just focused solely on it. And that's how I think I was able to, to get some success there. But, you know, I would never push my kid into something that they didn't want to do or take them to auditions just because they're cute. Um, because I, I do think that it can be a dark world. And I've had parents actually come up to me after workshops that I teach at Screen Actors Guild or whatever. And they're like, oh, what advice do you have for my little girl? You know, and um, I'm like, yeah, just uh, do it until it's not fun anymore. Don't, don't make her the breadwinner of the family. Don't, you know, this, I mean, kids need to have a regular childhood, yeah. I think. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I, as you were talking about that, I, I remembered this uh, moment in a, a conversation that uh, Sam Jones, who's uh, the host of a show called Off Camera, uh, was having with Matt Damon. And Matt Damon said, if I can talk somebody out of doing this in one conversation, I know that they're not cut out for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard. You got to push. It's got to be something that you want more than anything. Yeah. How old were you when you realized you wanted to do this? Oh my God. I, you know, uh, Recently, I cleaned out my mother sold her house a couple of years ago, and we cleaned out everything in that house. And I found this timeline that I had drawn. It's kind of like, this is what I want for my life <laughs> in preschool. Like This is like a preschool. This is pre-kindergarten anyway. And it was a timeline. And it, on it, I, it said, become an actor. <laughs> become a mom. Uh I don't, I don't remember what else was on it. I know that not, getting married was not on it, which I'm like, dang it. You know, <laughs> I, I missed that. Like, that's interesting. Like I didn't, that wasn't a priority then. And, uh, apparently it's not a priority now, but so, so I think I always wanted to be in front of people in some way or another and, and it morphed into dance. And now it's, I kind of get that fill from podcasting and speaking, uh -huh. um, I think 
very early, it was like, I, I felt when I would be in front of people, it was like, I, and I had all their attention. It was, I felt this magical sort of ability to create a space with them. Like it felt like I could create a room around us or like a magic bubble that we all sort of were suspended in for any amount of time. And I, I discovered this when I was out dancing, you know, say my dad took me to a jazz concert or something and I would just get up and start dancing around to the music and, and people would start looking at me and I really enjoyed it. And so then I would kind of, uh, coast on that wave or surf on that wave of, of attention. And it, it was like an energy exchange that I felt from a very early age. And I thought, this is good stuff. I like this and, and I can, and, and I'm taking everybody with me on this journey and it, it feels good. And it just, it just always felt like I was more of myself in those spaces. Wow. That's interesting. As an actor, you felt like you're more of yourself in those spaces when you're acting, which we will come back to. Uh, <laughs> but do you remember any particular moment or incident that made you think, okay, yeah, this is it. This is what I want to do. And, you know, why do you think you recognized it at such an early age? That seems unusually self-aware for somebody that young. Hmm. Was there any particular point? I can't remember ever wanting to, I, I love teaching and I spent, I spent a lot of time on my own. I think I always spent a lot of time in my own imagination you know what it is. Okay. This is kind of goofy and weird, but I don't know if you're, you're old enough to remember this, <laughs> the movie Xanadu from like 1976. I don't think so. I was born in 78. So it might be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was born in 76, but, okay. um, but I remember, but I remember seeing this movie Xanadu. It's got, Oh gosh, who was that woman? And, um, from Greece to, um, Olivia Newton John, huh. and she's this muse, and she's roller skating around Venice Beach, and then she sort of pops into this painting of this. There's this painter, and she becomes his muse, and she dances all these different styles, and she inspires him. And I think that movie, as cheesy as that movie is, if I go back and look at it, it really kind of infiltrated my inner narrative. There was something about it that resonated. And I, I felt like I, you know, I feel like I am a muse in so many ways. Um, that's kind of been the, the role that I keep playing again and again in ver different varying forms, you know, from people just painting me a lot and <laughs> or photographing me a lot to, you know, being a creativity coach and helping people, um, you know, pulling the best out of them and these kinds of things. And I just, I think, you know, those early stories, those early movies that we see, I think they really do get in there. And that one got in there for me. So you mentioned earlier that uh, when you would go to these auditions initially, you were bombing at stage fright. What, how did you not lose hope and how did you keep going back despite the fact that you weren't doing well? Well, I knew that I wouldn't be satisfied until until I conquered it. Like I knew I wouldn't be, there was nothing worse feeling than the consideration of just giving up. 
I think there's a, there was part of me that was like, no, like I am meant to do this. Uh, I, I, there actually was a turning point. I remember, um, I had been auditioning, gosh, like over a year I had been to maybe, I want to say like a hundred auditions, but maybe that's, that's more than I had, but I had gone to tons of auditions over like a year and a half. And I had casting agents that really liked me. I mean, I kept getting really close. You know, I had people that believed in me, luckily that kept calling me back for things. Um, and I'll never forget my dad sitting me down, you know, he's the one who had to get on the train with me for all of these and saying, you know, I believe in you, but are you sure you really want to keep doing this? And I just thought, yeah, yeah, I do. Yes. I know that I'm supposed to do this. I know I can feel like there's this energy that wanted to come through me and out. And it, and it, it's like having to sneeze or, um, never being able to reach the orgasm. It's like the worst feeling in the world. And I knew I needed to express it or I was gonna, I didn't want to live. Like it was that, it's that miserable of a feeling. It's like, you don't want to live if you can't express this and you can't have people say, I see it too. And then, you know, have a way to express it to a wider audience, not just in an audition. And so, you know, we got my, we got a coach, we got some help for me and I was able to sort of work through my nerves and find a way to use that and start bringing more of myself to those auditions. Let's talk uh, about the relationship with the coach. What, um, one, what impact did that relationship have on your life in general? And you, as somebody mm -hmm. who coaches people, what do you think the impact is, particularly on creative skill sets of having a, a skilled teacher, or a coach working with you? Sure. Well, I think a coach can see those areas where you're hiding. You know, a coach is able to draw you out from the your blind spots. And being a 16-year-old, which was the age I was when I, when I had this, um, Carmen Roman was her name, and she was coaching me and from Chicago. Um, and she, you know, having that, being that age, there's not a lot of self-awareness. You haven't developed, most of us haven't developed a lot of personal tools for self-growth <laughs> and awareness. I mean, kids these days are a little different. Like, I feel like we're really evolving as a species. But at that time in my life, I wasn't super self-aware. Um, I think I was for my age, but having somebody to... I, I think that's when I really started to get obsessed with the craft of acting. Like she really gave me the tools to see inside what it was that I was trying to do, you know, um, as an actor, it's like, you got to play the game. You can't play like you're playing a game. You gotta, you gotta hit the ball. It's like a baseball player that, um, like imagine if you went to go see some baseball and the guy was more concerned about how he looked than actually hitting the ball out of the park. Like it would be kind of like, what is he doing out there? Like he's not even trying to, to do it. And so that's kind of, I think, I think of, I like that analogy with acting. Cause I think you have to, you have to be focused on hitting that ball. You know, you have to be focused on playing the scene, playing the character, playing the objective, doing, you know, what is it that I'm trying to get out of this scene and then doing everything you can within the text 
to get that thing. And that's what this coach taught me. And I think that's when I got obsessed with the actual craft, the artistry. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's when I became an artist. So I'm wondering when you made that decision to shift to craft uh, versus how you look, did the desire to have this sort of make it moment or you know be famous or all this stuff go away and did it become more and more about the work uh, or did that still stay there? Because uh, I think that you know so many people when we start creative careers – so often we start out with the end in mind of, oh, like I want to be a published author or I want to do this or that or I want to end up on TV. And like the further I get into this, the more I realize how damaging that uh, ends up being uh, mm. in a lot of ways. And I, I'm just wondering what your own experience with it is and, and how that's changed with age, too. Right. Oh, my God. I love you. I love that you brought that up. I love you, too. That was funny. I just said I just said that I loved you, Srini. Um, (laughs) I love that you brought that up, though, because I think I would like to tell you that I have been on this pursuit of only for the creative and the craft. And Mm. um, it would be a lie because I, of course, because you know why artists want to be seen on a bigger level or to be famous is because, hey, it means you don't have to work as freaking hard. You know, like you don't have to like if people know you and know your work, then in some sense, you don't have to audition as much. You don't have to um, try to prove yourself as much. It gets easier. You actually make money doing what you're doing. So it's it's a unique field in that way that you're constantly trying to prove yourself. So I think fame is a, is a normal thing to want when you're doing creative work that mm, isn't just always valued, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, so I would say, honestly, it's been only in the last year and a half that I've begun and it's been through working with people who are famous, working with some of my clients who, who reached a level of fame and then the pressure became so immense that they, that it, it, that they collapsed under it until they found me to help them or, you know, or, or someone else to sort of break them out of their, their stuck place. But I think the pressure of being famous and having that kind of thing, I think, I think I just want to do the work now. Now I do. Now I do. You know, now I see it. I see what, how you can be famous. Some of the people I've interviewed, you can be famous and then the world can turn against you and you can be infamous. And that, (laughs) (laughs) right. It's scary. It's, it's, Tanya Harding, you know, everyone, um, you look at media today and it's like, oh yeah, we're supposed to put ourselves out there. But when we do, we can also get torn down. And, and lately I'm like, you know what? I just need to be able to do the work. I need to be that famous, but I don't need to be that famous. It's it's interesting because I think you're right. I don't think any of us necessarily does our work in a vacuum in the hopes that nobody will ever see it. Uh, right. And at the same time, I think that you know we kind of rob ourselves of a lot of joy if that is the only purpose behind doing the work. It, it's interesting you brought up fame, and I want to come back to some of the challenges uh, with this. Uh, you know, Oprah interviewed Tom Brady recently, and probably the most telling thing that he said in that entire conversation is the 
you know, probably the most negative byproduct of his fame is that he now trusts people less than he did before. Mm. Uh, he doesn't know who is in his orbit solely because he's Tom Brady. And that's, you don't think about that as one of the downsides. So mm -hmm. uh, having worked with the people that you have, what are the misperceptions that people who are not famous have about people who are famous? Mm. Well, we think they're confident. Mm. We think that they're somehow more evolved or, uh, you know, they're more confident or they got it together. And it's, that's a total lie. Yeah. And I, I mean, there, there certainly are exceptions. You know, I, I think there are definitely people that, um, I think on some level it demands it. Like if you are going to get to the top and then stay there or stay in the game, I guess I should say, because who cares about being at the top? But, you know, if you're just going to keep doing what you're doing, you have to find some kind of inner tools. You have to find some way to to manage that kind of energy that's coming at you all the time and that kind of attention. You have to be somewhat spiritually evolved, I think. I think that the bigger you become, the more tools you need, the more care you need to take of yourself and um, the more self-awareness and balance you need. Yeah. 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 Do you find that's true with yourself? Like, do you find the more, the bigger you become, you've had to? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. 
As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Uh, you know, I, I feel like I have to put distance between me and um, information in general uh, and input in general. But I, I, you know, I could kind of relate to what Tom Brady said. I do feel at moments that I don't trust people as much as I did before. Uh, mm. That, I think, has diminished with time, unfortunately. Um through some of the experiences I've had. Uh, and I, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm wary of people who show up like out of nowhere as a result of my work. And sometimes it's, you know, I mean, on the one hand, if it's like flattery and it's, you know, people who are, are listening different story, but sometimes, you know, when, when people come to you and, you know, you can, there's a sense that people want something from you. And mm -hmm. you're kind of like, okay, are people here just because they want something or are they interested in, in what they see or like, it, you know, I, I think what, let me sum it up very simply. Basically, I think what happens is that the, the circle of trust that you have actually becomes a lot smaller, but those bonds also become much deeper because there's so few of them. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah. So there's a good, there's a good side of it is you, you know yeah. who your people are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, let's do this. I want to talk, uh, about what happened after you left high school. Like how mm -hmm. did you get from there to where you are today? Yeah. Wow. So I left high school and I chose a college that was near Chicago because that's where my agent was. And I thought, you know, I go to college and continue auditioning for things. Um, but it wasn't so easy. You know, I, uh, college, I went to a, a small liberal arts college that was very conservative unbeknownst to me before I got there, but it was very conservative. And, but there were, you know, there was the theater group and there were the theater kids. And then, so I ended up with the theater crowd and I ended up going out with the campus drug dealer. So I was smoking a lot of weed and doing a lot of hallucinogens. And that was basically the key to help me unravel into my own anxiety breakdown. Um, I'll never forget the day that Steppenwolf Theater called me and for an audition, which that doesn't normally, like they don't usually call people and say, Hey, come in. But they'd heard of me around Chicago and they wanted me to, to read and I turned it down. And shortly after that, I, I told my agent, I didn't want to audition anymore because I just felt like it was all crumbling. It was like, I started to get what I wanted, but I didn't have any real sense of self-worth. And then of course, like the drugs and everything didn't help, but I just really started to fall apart. And so I came back to Indianapolis. I, um, finished school 
at the the school where my University of Indianapolis, where my mother was the librarian. <laughs> so I really came home and and you know in a place that I knew and finished school, and then I traveled the world. I just I started traveling and dancing wherever I went and learning dance wherever I went. And I turned to dance. And then, you know, for the next 15, 20 years, that's, I was a dancer. I was a professional dancer. And I think dance healed me on some level. I think there was things I hadn't worked through and experiences in my life that I were traumatic and abusive. And I hadn't, I didn't have a way to work through those and something about the visceral and the mm, like dance just moves things through you. Like you, you can't hold on to an emotion because it's so it's, it's such a powerful release of, of everything. And so I think through becoming a dancer, I was able to, to heal myself, to learn new tools, um, to find real deep inner self and confidence, um, and then so it was actually and so then you want to know how I got from there to being a coach um, when I so when I was dancing, I was teaching dance and I noticed as I was teaching dance and I was looking out at the, you know, the, my dancers, I was more interested in where they were hiding and pulling them out of there and helping them to shine than I was with technique. Like technique's important, of course, but for me, like the real fun of the class was when I just have them do the combination again and again, and I'd get them to express in bigger and, and more exciting ways. And, and so I, I started becoming known for this in my classes and in my work. And, um, I actually had, peers of mine who would be like, Hey, I'm really stuck on this commission I have. Can you help me choreograph this? And so I started coaching actually the people in my circle, like people, the other friends of mine. And it was like when they started saying, Hey, uh, do you have an hour? I'll pay you a hundred dollars that I was like, Hey, I, you know, I should, I, I apparently remember how to do something that people sometimes forget how to do. And that's when I decided to take myself seriously as a coach. I started coaching people. Um, it became known more than just the dancers, the musicians, the composers. People started reaching out to me by referral. Mm -hmm. And that's really it just sort of had an organic flow to it. It's interesting. Uh, as a dancer, uh, I think one of the things that really struck me uh, when I was doing research for uh, the book that I, I've just finished writing on Audience of One uh, mm -hmm. was the role that a physical practice uh, of some sort plays in the lives of virtually every creative person that I've known. You know, like I have a lot mm -hmm. of friends who are runners. I'm an avid surfer. And mm -hmm. having been a dancer, why is it that physical movement uh, seems to be so closely linked to creative expression? Well, I think there's this big missing piece in the creative conversation these days. I'm just going to be real with you. I think we think of creativity as this mental, intellectual, uh, analytical thing. We want to create a formula around it, which I'm guilty of that because I wrote a book called The Creative Formula. <laughs> we want to we want to create systems for it. We want to say it works this way, and all you got to do is add something, or all you got to do is take away something, or all, you know, it's very mental. And I 
and there is this missing sensuality that I'm really passionate about bringing to the conversation, which is what you're talking about right now is that body piece and the sensuality and the, um, the, the creativity that comes from our physicality and from our physical body's wisdom. Like our bodies have so much wisdom in them. Like, have you ever gotten a massage and as someone's massaging you, like memories will just float up that you haven't thought of in years? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think like, you know, where else is our mind? Like, is it floating above our heads? Like our, (laughs) you know, I think our mind is in every, every cell it's in our muscles and it's in our body and our body remembers and, and holds on to things and, and has stories to tell of its own and, and can tell us a lot. I think the body is sort of our spirit's vehicle for, for telling us things, wisdom that we have. It's, and it's kind of like the, the plug that goes into the wall to more of ourselves. Like, I think we could use our bodies as that, a transmitter as that, that plug to more, to more of ourselves than where we can access all the ideas and all the knowledge and all the wisdom that might not even be our own. Well, we're starting to get into some crazy territory here. <laughs> I'm good with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I have found that uh, my, you know, I, I talked to Sasha Hines, who we had here, who was a lifelong skier, and I'd asked her about this. I said, you know, I have always thought it's not a coincidence that my writing journey and my surfing journey are literally parallel in terms of their timelines. Mm. Uh, it wasn't until those two things were consistent in my life that I think they both fed each other in a lot of ways. Hmm. How so? So like, well, I'm just curious, like when you're surfing, well, would you just find ideas would flow up yeah, or what? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a perfect way to describe it is that, you know, it forces a level of presence on you, which I don't think I really understood what it meant to be present until I surfed. Like I never, I, I don't think up until the time I caught a wave, I, I truly understood what it felt like to be present. Wow. Yeah. I, I would like to su- learn to surf someday. Surfing's hard, man. <laughs> Kudos to you. <laughs> That's awesome. But it does seem like such a spiritual practice, like yeah. surfing, the art of dealing with each wave as it comes, right? And getting on top of it and riding it and interesting. Yeah, well, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the thing that really, I think, got my attention about your story is that I obsess over mental models. Uh, I've always loved uh, people who have different ones, hence the reason we have all these guests with various frameworks and models. And the thing that caught my attention the most uh, about your work was something uh, you basically described as your creative DNA. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you could uh, expand on that, explain it to us, and how do people figure out what their creative DNA is? Sure. Well, I have a quiz. You can go to Performers and Careers Lab. Just kidding. <laughs> well, I mean, I do and you can. But um, but I think it's broader than that, right? Like I can create something and, and say, hey, answer these questions and I can tell you a little bit about yourself. But I think that our creative DNA is we, we each of us come into this lifetime sort of wired in a certain way, sort of ready to where we have things that we're interested in and, um, problems that we want to solve. And like some of us are more wired to, um, 
we have ideas that are flowing to us and through us and all the time. And we're, we're more apt to come up with lots of ideas, but then never finish them. And some of us are wired to, uh, to finish things. We're very task oriented and goal oriented and we like to check things off a box. And some of us are more wired to, um, to stay in and, and be more, you know, imagining things in our heads and maybe we have a hard time translating them. And so I think all of us have a sort of aptitude and we can develop that. And, but we can also look for ways to develop the other parts of ourselves. So, um, they say that they've discovered that it really is true that we inherit our family's trauma. We inherit our family's stories. Um, it's, it's these things can be passed on generationally. So I think that's also a part of the picture too. You know, what, what are you here to heal? I know for me, there's been a big realization about, about what I'm here to heal on behalf of my family. Like this is, there are things that have been passed along and, and that create emotional bodies that I'm like, where did this come from? This isn't mine. I didn't, this isn't things I've experienced in this lifetime, but they're interesting. And in some ways it makes it more interesting that it's bigger than myself. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a little bit about creative DNA. How do people uncover what theirs might be, especially if they're, you know, much further along in life? And we talked a little bit about how people are wired. Like, how does that manifest in terms of their behavior and their actual work? Well, that's where, you know, it takes some unpacking depending on how much you pay attention to yourself, because I think we can be conditioned to do certain things. We can condition ourselves to be a certain way. But does it bring you joy? Does it, or does it, is it feel good to you? And sometimes I think we can get really twisted up because we, we can, we, we've been so conditioned from a, you know, this is the kind of job you need to have. These are the kinds of things that you need to do. Um, and we condition ourselves to, to fall into that box and then it's hard and then it's hard to even know what we like. It's hard to even find like where is our pleasure? What what is pleasurable to us? Because it's like we've been handed so much through media, TV, different sources, like this is what you should be doing. This is how you should feel about this thing. And and I think the most liberating thing is when a person goes, I hate that thing. I don't I don't want that in my life. I don't like that. I don't like doing this thing everybody else says should be fun. And just getting really clear and claiming that space is your own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is interesting because we, we live in, in sort of uh, an incredibly media-driven world, right? Even for people listening to this podcast and listening to the ideas they've been exposed to. I, I think at moments, I, I can't help but wonder if all we've done is simply traded uh, one socially programmed definition of success for another uh, based mm -hmm. on the new ideas that we're hearing, as opposed to uh, taking in the information and you know making our own assessments on what we agree with, what we disagree with, and, and you know how we want to live based on some of what we heard, not all of what we heard, rather than treating people's advice uh, like a compass. We're so quick to treat it like a map. Ooh, that that now that that's a soundbite. That's tweetable. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> treating it like a compass. 
we're so apt to treat it like a map. Whoa. I love that. Yeah. I think we, it's true. It's true. Like even, even in the advice that I give people or the things that I say or do, I always wanted to lead back to the person, you know, cause like, who am I, who am I to tell someone who's never met me, like what they should think or do or how they should live their life. And I think a lot of people look for that. They, they want somebody to just tell them because it is easier in some ways. It is easier to just say, okay, I'm going to adopt this system and it's, it says that it works and I'm going to do it. And I think that can take you some, some of those things can take you so far. They can, um, there are things that really work for people and then you got to know where you divert, where it doesn't work for you. And you have to be willing. I think we need more people that say, okay, this worked up to this point and now what? And that's when I want to say, that's when you develop your own system, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I mean, as a creator of content and a creator of systems for people and healing modalities and, and wanting to help people, I think that's a vulnerable thing to say, right? Like, maybe my thing won't help you. <laughs> but I think what the way that I am able to help people so, so much, the people that I work with is by always getting them in tune with that compass inside themselves, because otherwise you're just creating a reliance and addiction on, on more self-help and more of someone else. And, you know, that's the last thing I want might not be the best business model, yeah. but it's not what I want. Yeah. Well, I think you and I share that in common. I've, I've always wondered at what point do you draw the line to like a self-help addiction, which clearly is, is not working. Yeah. Yeah. And I still read self-help, you know, I yeah, still, too. I love tips and <laughs> I love it. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I'm sure I could probably open up a new age gift shop with the books on my shelf. Uh, <laughs> so one other aspect of this I want to talk about, you know, we, we've touched on on this notion of craft, and I know that you have had a lengthy creative career. You've worked with people who have had long creative careers. What is it that uh, leads to longevity in a, a creative career, and how do people navigate the fact that the beginning is so hard, knowing that it's going to be that long? I mean, and have you seen what causes people to quit? Uh, in but particularly in a career like acting mm. doubt i mean doubt causes you to quit and and it's not hard for everybody it doesn't have to be hard it's not always hard mm -hmm. you know like if her, i heard uh jennifer lawrence tell her story on um what a wtf podcast and i was just like ugh, it just makes you go like <laughs> it sounds so easy for her like she was discovered you know, and then she had this movie and that movie. And now she's like, she's huge. She's like one of the biggest movie stars in the world. Right. Um, maybe she's miserable. I don't know. I don't think so though, but you know, it doesn't have to be hard. And I think doubt, I think doubting yourself makes it hard and, the, and it makes you go, you know, it's like, we're, if you like think about being on a journey and you're headed towards Abraham, I'm taking this from Abraham Hicks. They use this metaphor all the time. You're on your way to Chicago, say from LA and you get halfway to Chicago and then you're like, wait, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm going to make it to Chicago. I, I'm going to turn around 
and and you turn around and you go back a little bit. But you're like, but I really want to go to Chicago. And then you turn back around and you head that way again. And then it's like you never get there because you're always doubting. You're you're never sure quite where you are. You're on the journey. You just can't see it. You just maybe don't feel things moving, you know, but you're on the journey. But so if you just stay on it, you'll get there eventually. You'll get you'll get somewhere eventually. Like something's bound to happen. But it's the doubting and the the not quite committing. I really am a true believer in commit and the path will unfold. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you if you commit to taking one step and then another step and then another step, then the path is going to show up in front of you. Yeah. Um, but if you're not sure, you may never get there. I appreciate that you brought up commitment because uh, I think that we underestimate the impact of the small things that we do and the small creative expressions that we have uh, on a consistent basis, uh, just because they don't seem like they're leading us to somewhere gargantuan uh, in the moment. Uh, I mean, it just when I think about how all of this started, it was literally an hour a day just working on this thing that I found interesting. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It, it's it's truly is like what. it's like the commitment isn't like some, it doesn't have to be some huge thing that you're committing to. It could just be committing to what is interesting to you. Like, I love that you brought that up. It's like, if you commit every day to exploring anything that's interesting to you, then every day, more and more things that are interesting to you are going to show up. Like it just, it's, it has its own momentum. Right. Um, and so it, it creates a momentum. You, you start to see more things. It's like, um, a few years ago I did a project called 365 dances and I, cause I was tired of my own pity party and saying, Oh, I want to make more dance, but I'm not, and I'm just sad and I'm going to drink wine and watch Netflix. And so I committed, I was going to make a dance every single day, like no matter what, it could be five minutes, it could be an hour of working on it. Um, but every day I had to make a dance. And what was interesting to me in that year of, of committing to that was how interesting the world around me became because I was constantly looking for ideas. Like I was constantly like, Ooh, I wonder if that tree would be a good place to make a little dance video or, you know, like I was constantly looking for things that were beautiful, that were interesting in people's gestures. I would take a a gesture of the bus driver and turn it into a little dance. And I think, Um, those, I love those little dances. They're not like great pieces, but sometimes I still look back on those videos for inspiration because they're just these little nuggets of the life I was living in, in that time and space. Hmm. Yeah. So we talked about commitment. Uh, how do people resolve doubt? Um, how have you in your own life? That's, that feels like a big question. <laughs> you should expect that by now. <laughs> I should have known. Doubt. I mean, how do we, well, don't just stop having it. <laughs> stop. <laughs> stop having it. Nip it at the bud. I think doubt is like anything else. It's going to, it's going to get momentum. And I think anytime you look down at the forest floor, you can find a stick to pick up and beat yourself with. Like you can always find a reason to doubt. It's always, there's always going to be, um, the potential to doubt. And so I think it's like, 
recognizing when you're starting to do it and, and, and saying, Oh, Hey, that's, I know what that feels like. I know what that is. And being able to just turn your attention somewhere else, pivot, just look at anything else, you know, any, take a nap if you have to, but don't start doubting yourself, you know? And I think that our minds are interesting things and, and we shouldn't believe everything that they tell us. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so just don't have doubt. Just don't. <laughs> no, that, that, believe it or not, though, that's, that's incredibly go there. helpful. I think uh, <laughs> I was looking for a practical answer to it, but I think you gave it to me. I mean, and that to me is, is actually really useful. It's helpful for me even as I'm thinking about a lot of things in my own life right now. So I, I really appreciate that. Oh, good. Uh, well, this has been truly fascinating and phenomenal. I'm really, really glad that you're referred to me and now I see why you were. Um, so oh. I have one final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I knew this was coming. And so I thought about it and I, it, it's interesting to say something as unmistakable as looking at it with an outside lens, isn't it? It's saying, what makes you special to, to anyone else? And I think each of us, and I know that you know this as well, each of us is unique. Each of us is a unique combination of, of cells and vibration and experiences and character traits and growing up. And we're all this, you know, this combination of things. And each of us has a unique vibration and we're all going to be resonant with other vibrations in other people and sometimes not resonant with others. But I think what makes you able to be found by those people who are resonant with you is by having all the pieces aligned and in integrity. And what I mean by that is when I think about voice and when I talk to my artists about voice, I say voice is who you are what you're doing, how you're doing it, why you're doing it, and your beliefs. And if all five of those pieces are in alignment, like if you have a belief and and what you're doing is a direct correlation, that creates a beautiful symmetry, a beautiful magnetism. And I think people feel that when all those pieces like click into place, you become a lighthouse for those things that are resonant to that. And that is unmistakable. Mm. Well, I think that makes a a really fitting and incredibly poetic end to a very poetic conversation. Where can people find (laughs) out more about you and your work? Sure. Well, they can take my creative DNA quiz on performersandcreatorslab.com and uh, the Performers and Creators Lab podcast too. So yeah, they can find me there. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration 
into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.